it's uh, fitting, given what we're about to address in Scripture, that we're inviting those to take responsibility and have influence in this church, because it's uh, certainly the case that when it comes to having responsibility and influence, that you're subjected to new versions of temptation. That any level of responsibility, when others look to you for guidance and leadership, temptation is close at hand and perhaps even closer. We want to talk about that. Now, I'm going to set this up in a rather stark and dramatic way. This is a, a scene from um, the series called Ozark. It's about a husband and wife who get caught up in a money laundering scheme. I know, do any of you money launder? Any, know anything about it? Don't raise your hand. Um, I'd have to turn you in, I'm a first responder. And uh, money laundering is their thing. And, and every chance they get, they look for a way out. But the more they proceed, the more they get drawn in and they can't find their way out until the wife kind of has this recognition that there is just something to what they thought would be just a short-term, low-risk, nobody-gets-hurt kind of experience, and, well, it just never turns out to be the case. It's a thing that no one tells you about evil. They make it seem like there are two clearly marked paths with flashing signs pointing out each way sin redemption i mean they tell you adam and eve knew that they could eat from every single tree in that garden except one but the, the truth is evil comes when the righteous path is so hidden it, it just looks like there's only one way out goes fast, but she's spot on when it comes to the nature of temptation. Whenever we succumb to it, it's because we think that the path of righteousness is hidden entirely from our view, and that's what we tell ourselves, and that's what we think. Whether you believe in God or not, whether you are here because you want to or because you're just trying to placate somebody else's conscience, you will be faced with temptation. You will come to a crossroads in a moment and set before you are two possibilities. The preservation of a value, of a relationship, of a conviction, whatever it might be. The preservation of it or the violation of it. It's everybody's experience, no matter whether you believe in a transcendent idea or a deity or not. It's everybody's experience. And the question is, what will restrain you or to keep you re from resisting or succumbing to that and maybe even a better question or an important question is, what happens if you do fall into it? What then? It's everybody's story. It's everybody's experience. And you know, when it comes to temptation, whether you believe in God or not also, everybody's got reasons for why they might resist. For what harm it might do to you or others. For what it might cost you or others for how it might change you or others irrevocably. All of those are reasons why you might resist temptation. If you're a Christian, those ideas come into play, but there is a far more unique approach. More unique? No such thing. There is a unique approach to facing, resisting, and being restored from temptation that none of those reasons speak to. And what's unique about that approach is that it involves the participation of the Holy Spirit. If you are just joining us, 
we are taking time for as long as we need to to consider the Holy Spirit, is that just a figure of speech? Is that just a way of talking? Is that just sort of an expression, some sort of personification of understanding God, or is there something more to it? Um, we're trying to make the argument that there's something more to it than that. The Holy Spirit participates in you thinking about, facing, resisting, and recovering from temptation. And the way we're going to understand that is once again to look at the participation of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. Last week, we considered the Spirit's part in Jesus' incarnation and his maturing. This week, we're going to look at two other moments from his life that are smushed neatly together. His baptism and his temptation. And I think we're going to learn that the Spirit's participation in his life in both of those moments allows us to understand that the Spirit participates in our life under two heads. It comes down to a question of identity and the implications that follow from it. Everything that has to do with your temptation and the Spirit's participation in it will come down to a question of identity and certain implications that follow from it. That's where we're headed. We're in Matthew chapter 3. I wonder if you might stand and focus your attention and we'll We'll see if we can learn a few things about how the Spirit is involved in the moment. We're in chapter 3. We'll start in verse 13. <clears throat> and then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become bread, loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, all of these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Okay, let's, let's rewind the tape just a little. Last week, um, two moms, two very unlikely pregnancies. There's Elizabeth. 
and her much younger friend, Mary. Mary um, stops by for a visit to Elizabeth while she's pregnant with Jesus and while Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. And what happens? Um, baby John inside Elizabeth's womb leaps and, and Elizabeth exclaims, by the Holy Spirit, you have someone in you, you have no idea what's going on. In that moment, and it's all by the Spirit. The moment we talk about today, decade, a few decades later. Here's where we go. Here's Jesus. Here's John. Jesus shows up with John in the Jordan River, baptizing people. He arrives, and John the Baptist says, look, I'm here to baptize you with water, but somebody's coming. Somebody is on approach. Somebody is in the vestibule, in the wings, waiting to show up. And when they show, I'm just saying, it's time for you to turn from your ways. It's time for you to repent, so John says. And with all of that happening, John says, look, the one who is coming, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Uh, what does Michael Jordan's mom say about the Air Jordan? Look, a shoe is just a shoe until my son puts his foot in it. John the Baptist is saying, a sandal is just a sandal until Jesus puts his foot in it. And because it is, I couldn't even untie it. Which makes then what Jesus asking him to do, like, I'm sorry, what? Jesus says, John, time for you to baptize me. And John's like, I'm sorry, that you have it reversed, man. I, 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 you are going to come and baptize us with the Spirit and with fire, whatever that means. I just got water. This is just a symbol. You've got more uh, associated with you. I should be the one being baptized by you. And Jesus says, enough. Can we do this? Let's do this now. And then Jesus says these sort of mysterious words. You shall baptize me that we might fulfill all righteousness. And sometimes you wish Jesus would say more. Or, or you wish Matthew would include maybe what Jesus said next. That's Neither of those are true. So all we can do is kind of sit with that for a while and reflect on it and pray about it and go, what, what did Jesus mean? We know one thing that he didn't mean. Jesus did not come into the waters of baptism to be cleansed of his sin. That's not why he was there. We just had a nice conversation with the rising sixth graders coming into the youth during the first hour. We talked about the sacraments. We talked about what baptism is and, and what it isn't. And in this moment, Jesus is coming for a reason. It's not to acknowledge that he needs cleansing for his sin. He says, I've come to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Stop there for the moment with the word fulfill. In part, it means that there was something that everybody had been waiting for that was finally coming to fruition. There was a day that had been promised, and now Jesus is saying, this is it. Congratulations. Ring the bell. I've come to fulfill something. I've come to do a lot here. I've come to fill out for you also a picture of what life is. Um, you and I, we, we think of righteousness and holiness as just sort of a way of being, as sort of a of, of, of a, it's about knowing perfectly what not to do and what to do. And Jesus is saying, oh, friends, stop being so prudish and puritanical in your thinking. What is righteousness? Righteousness is life. Righteousness is a life that's finally free and unencumbered with nothing to prove. And he's come to fulfill for us a picture of what life looks like. If you're looking to Jesus as just the one who gets you out of the, the, the judgment and the hell card, 
you're not hearing him fully. He's come to paint for you a prototype for life. And he's come to fulfill that picture of it for you. And as he's come to fulfill promises and fulfill a picture of what life is, he's also come to say unto us, I am identifying with you. I am not on my high horse. I am not in my ivory tower. I am not up on the mountain like the guru waiting for you to come to me. I'm in it with you. I am with you in your humanity, to borrow a line from F.D. Bruner, as surely as I am with God in his eternity. And I will never distance myself from you. I am fulfilling righteousness by saying, I am with you and I am for you. But at the same time that I am saying I am with you and I am for you, I am saying this. The only way into righteousness, the only way, the only path into righteousness is through a cleansing. That's why we got the water here involved. It's not just because we were hot. It's because the way in will come through a cleansing, and that's a cleansing only I can bring you. For him to say, I am coming to fulfill all righteousness, is to do all of those things in real time. And in that moment, what happens? The Spirit identifies with him, and the Spirit identifies with the kingdom of God and with God himself, and then God, through that Spirit, identifies with Jesus. Jesus identifies with us, and then the Spirit and the Father identify with Jesus in a particular way. The heavens open. The Spirit, it says, descends like a dove. All right. Uh, what's with the bird imagery, the dove? Why, why the beautiful slide that, that Stacey Jacome created with the dove? What's up with that? Why, why use the imagery of a bird? All right. Rewind the tape. If you were here on the first week talking about the Holy Spirit, you remember what Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says. And there was darkness over the deep and the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Hovering. Sort of obscured in the English translation. But it's the same Hebrew word used in Deuteronomy 32 to refer to the Lord like an eagle fluttering his wings over Israel that his brood might take refuge in him. The word there for hovering is the same word for fluttering. And so here in Matthew chapter 3, we hear a reference all the way back to Genesis 1 that as the Spirit of God was involved in the work of creation, so the Spirit of God is here to do something on behalf of Jesus to speak of something foundational and fundamental for us all to understand about Him. Thus the bird imagery. Involved in creation, involved in this moment, but also because what do we think of when we think of birds? as gentle, as exercising their power often through a gentle means. If you caught the coronation a couple weeks ago, before they were done, they put on Charles III's right hand called the coronation gauntlet. It's a glove, bejeweled, splendid. What does it signify? What does it point to? That he might exercise his authority with gentleness. What do we know of Jesus from his own words? For I am gentle and lowly of heart. And here is the Spirit descending like a dove to communicate that in which Jesus will express his own authority, his own power, like a bird, like a dove. The Spirit descends to show us there's something foundational going on, that Jesus' power will be expressed through gentleness, 
But also, most importantly, what's going on here for the Spirit to descend? Jesus is being anointed. Again, take you back to the coronation a couple weeks ago. What happens, it's the most intimate part of the whole service. It's never been seen in public. It was done behind a scrim. Nobody's looking, not even the guards. Their eyes are closed. And behind that scrim, Charles III is having anointed by the high priest holy oil from Jerusalem upon his forehead, upon his hand, and upon his breast to signify that he is being set apart for purpose. That's what the holy oil is for. What is that hearkening to? It's not that the Brits didn't come up with that. The Brits did not come up with that. Jesus did. The Holy Spirit did. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. Not just showing up to go, I'm here, but to set Jesus apart for purpose. To anoint him with power and to set him apart for purpose. That's what the Spirit is doing there. And while the anointing happens to Charles III, there are words that he accompany the moment. It's not just that, 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 silence. Words are happening because words are happening here at Jesus' anointing by the Spirit in his baptism. Those words ring from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The anointing is accompanied by words that's out to fill out our perception of who it is that we're dealing with here. And as I said over the last couple of weeks, the Holy Spirit's work, among other things, is to take ideas and to make them persuasive. And the ideas that are meant to be persuasive in this moment and in every moment in which the Spirit is working is to persuade you that Jesus is more than just some historical or religious figure. That he is more than just a prophet, a priest, or a king, though he is all three, but he's more than that. That he is a beloved son of God, unlike no one is. And that Jesus' words later about the forgiveness of sin, the Spirit is out to persuade you that he is not just saying you need forgiveness, but that Jesus is the only one who can secure that forgiveness for you by his own death. Those are ideas, and you can hear them a thousand times and they ring no bell for you. But at some point the Spirit says, this is it. And something clicks. And to borrow a line, the penny drops. Or to borrow Molly Worthen's line from last week, the historian from UNC Chapel Hill, a line gets crossed. And she says, I think he was risen from the dead. That whole moment, the Spirit's participation is out to confirm to everybody who might hear this, that Jesus has a unique identity, a beloved son of God with whom God is well pleased. He delights in. And that's good. And that sets him apart in our mind or it's meant to. But here's where it matters for you and for me. The words that are spoken over Jesus in this moment in truth are words similarly that are meant to be spoken over you by the Spirit in love. You are not him. You are not Lord. You are responsible for no one's salvation. But you are meant to conceive of yourself that by what Jesus did, that the Lord speaks over you words that are similar to the words that he spoke over his own son. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. You are not merely tolerated. 
It is not a begrudging sort of affirmation that God makes over you. Because of what he did for you, it's because of what Christ has done for us. Those words that might seem like they only fit in somebody else's life, they fit in yours if your faith is in him. And that, friends, and beloved, believers and non-believers alike, is absolutely crucial. It is the linchpin for holding together your entire confrontation with temptation. As I said at the beginning, there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to resist temptation. And some of those have their place and they have a kind of value and they have a kind of power and a persuasiveness to it. But this one, if it's not in place, the power for resisting temptation is not as it ought to be. When you are young and you do something wrong or you are on the verge of maybe doing something wrong, there is a voice in your head or a voice from a friend that says, oh man, are you going to get it? You are so going to get it right? It's been there, done that, right? And you know what? It's not bad, and it's not untrue, and it can be helpful. That's a deterrent. Oh, am I going to get it? How about I not do that? I don't want to get it. But the deterrent of punishment is nothing compared to the deterrent of ignoring something deeper. Resisting and recovering from temptation will always come down to a recovery of your sense of the identity of Jesus and of your identity in him. There's no way around it. At some point, it has to get there. There are some moments that are preliminary that, yes, you know what? You'll be in jail if you do that. And if that's what it takes to stop you, so be it. We'll say that because it's true. But to work real healing, to work real wholeness into the depths of your being, at some point, thank you, you're going to have to come to the point where you recover a sense of who he is and who you are in him. That's, there's no alternative to that. In this world, the most important question that it seems to be everybody's asking themselves is, who am I? Who am I? And as they try to answer that question, they demand recognition from everybody else to say, this is who I am, and you will agree with me. And they believe that that is the most important thing that they can have, is for you to say, yes, yes, that's who you are. And that's what you've got around here. That's, that's the only game in town. Jesus would like to respectfully quibble with you and say, there's actually a deeper question and it's the one you really want to know, and that's this. Not who am I, but who do I belong to? Whose am I? And in the person of Jesus, given the identity of who he is and what he did in response to that, this is who you are. You belong to him, and you were bought by him. And the extent to which you can be aware of that and believe that in real time is the extent to which you may resist temptation and recover from it later should you forget. That's the way the Spirit participates in your life. And that's just from the baptism. What about the temptation? Um, look, Jesus has this moment, and he doesn't say to himself, so, Jesus, you've just been baptized. Where are you going? I'm going to Disney World. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say that. He's, I, I'm going to the wilderness. And you know what? Who decides whether he goes to the wilderness? Not him. 
the spirit who just descended like a dove and affirmed the word. I just ask it rhetorically and to give no time to it. Do you believe the spirit leads, guides, or directs? There's, there's too many texts in the Old and the New Testament that speak to the, to the spirit having that kind of activity in a person's life for us to go, nah, uh-uh. It's just, you know, it's my own intuition. I just, that's it. Well, okay, I don't know what to do with this. The spirit led him. Where? Into the wilderness. That was not random. Those who first heard this word, when they heard that Jesus was led into the wilderness, they would be reminded of another body that went into the wilderness, and that would be Israel, following its exodus. You go into the wilderness, because where Israel went into the wilderness, that was a place where faith, or, where faith either went to grow or to die. It is the place where your real heart is surfaced. When do we most learn? When everything that we're familiar with, all the props that we rest in, all the comforts that we're familiar with suddenly get ripped out from underneath us, and then you learn. Then you discover what is deepest within you. Then you get to learn whether or not I will follow the way of my most carnal desires or I will follow something that I have been told. In the wilderness... And he's led by the Spirit in the wilderness to what? To be tempted by the devil. Are you kidding me? Wait a minute. Doesn't James say God doesn't tempt us? He does say that. Who's the one tempting here? It's not the Spirit. The Spirit leads him into a place where that confrontation might happen. And to borrow the words of another scholar, yes. Does the Spirit lead us to good things? Yes. But he also leads us into confrontation with things that are bad. And there it is. Look, that world is, it just sounds like, What's going on here? I want to briefly bring up a story from a film called Devil's Advocate. Ha <laughs> ha. It's about a lawyer. Ha <laughs> ha. Right? Um, <laughs> no offense, Ross. Um, he's an up-and-coming lawyer, uh, but he has learned that uh, he can actually game the system to his own advantage and actually tell only part of the truth in order to get people off. And um, he is met by a mentor. And that mentor is really impressed with his skills and then invites him to come and kind of work for him and discover a whole new dimension of, of being a lawyer. And in this moment, the mentor, played by Al Pacino, is going to, um, in some ways, sort of let him know that maybe there's something more to this and that there is something more to him, too. Keanu Reeves plays the up-and-coming lawyer, so take this in for what it's worth. What do you want from me? I want you to be yourself. You know, I'll tell you, boy... Guilt, it's like a bag of bricks. All you gotta do, set it down. Who are you carrying all those bricks for, anyway? God? Is that it? God? Well, I tell you, let me give you a little inside information about God. He gives man instincts. He gives you this extraordinary gift, and then what does he do? I swear. For his own amusement, his own private cosmic gag reel. He sets the rules in opposition. It's the goof of all time. Look, but don't touch. Touch, but don't taste. Taste, don't swallow. <laughs> and while you're jumping from one foot to the next, what is he doing? He's an absentee landlord. Worship that never. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, is that it? Why not? 
I'm here on the ground with my nose in it since the whole thing began. I've nurtured every sensation man has been inspired to have. I cared about what he wanted, and I never judged him. Why? Because I never rejected him in spite of all his imperfections. I'm a fan of man! I'm a humanist. Maybe the last humanist. You get the feeling that he's more than a lawyer. <laughs> um, but in those few words, in that uh, interesting film, he only replicates what was the first temptation brought before Adam and Eve, to sow doubt in that God having his best, your, his best your best interest in mind, not to be trusted, and that anything you come up against a temptation, it's because you know, God didn't think about that in advance, and, and he's just a killjoy. Jesus in this moment is confronted by something similar. And, and these temptations that he faces, they're his alone. They're not yours. But I believe that we can find something downstream of what he experienced that, ha that maps a little bit onto our own experience. What we're about to learn here is that temptation is inevitable. If it was inevitable for him, it is inevitable for you. Uh, what you think is the most... Uh, the, the, the steadiest, firmest set of convictions, if you think that is not impenetrable to second-guessing, you're wrong. If, if you think your honor and your conviction and your virtue is incapable of ever being um, uh, answered or, or put in jeopardy, you're wrong. And if you think about it carefully, your worst enemy is not human. And therefore, if you think a human is your worst enemy, when you do, you are falling prey to the one who is not human. It doesn't mean we look for a devil under every rock. But if you think your worst enemy is somebody else in the room, you're wrong. No matter what you feel, Jesus comes forward and he faces these temptations and temptation would be inevitable. And when you get there, what does he face? What is going through him? Let's just take each one of them very briefly as we end. When he is offered the chance to turn stones into bread, it's not really a problem I have. I'm not really concerned about whether I can do that. What is he being confronted with? To use his power for his own purposes. But also, in that moment, he is tempted to deny his dependence upon his father. And that's why he rattles off what? Scripture, Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is he saying? That bread is bad? No. Is he saying that bread isn't necessary? No. When he, in John chapter 4, when they show up at the woman at the well... He sends them off to get what? Gum? No. Food. Go get some bread. I'm hungry, it says. I'm weary. What he's saying is this. Bread is good. Bread is helpful. Bread is necessary. But bread is not enough. The temptation that he faced maps onto ours in this way. You and I will always be tempted to make our own provision in such a way that we do not think that we really depend on him. And in this moment, Jesus is documenting for us this. 
Yes, bread is good, but God's word is meant to be for you nourishment. And at the same time, as he's using it here, God's word is meant for you to be a sword. And it's asking us rhetorically, is the word in any sense for you food? Or is it just what you hear and immediately run? Like, if you go to Sierra this afternoon and you order the grits, oh, the grits, and they put it in front of you and you sniff it and you stare at it and that's all you do and you watch it get cold, what is wrong with you? Well, let's just say you take a, a spoonful, but you put it in your mouth and, uh, uh, you know, melt there, and then you spit it out. And we will look at you, what is wrong with you? In no way are you allowing that food both to enjoy, but also to provide you strength, to assimilate it in your body, to digest it. And I think Jesus is asking us all, even as he's enduring this temptation, is in his, his word in any sense something that you digest? Or is it something that you hear and immediately let it, you know, fall off and walk around? Is it food? Is it a sword? Is it ever deployed in a way to protect you and defend you as he is defending it here? Do you know it well enough to be able to marshal it in a moment where you feel like, I don't know what's right. You bring it in. No, that's not my temptation to turn stones into bread, but yes, to deny my dependence on him, yes, I feel it every day. Okay, what about the thing about being taken to the top of the temple? Satan says, you like scripture? I know scripture. I'll even quote it for you. And he knows it better than we do. He knows Psalm 91 better than you and I do. He quotes Psalm 91. You love scripture? Great. Dude, throw yourself off. You know it's not going to be a hard fall. Nothing will hurt you. Not a scratch. And you know what? Won't that be great, Jesus? Do it. You won't be harmed. That'll prove to everybody who you really are. Nobody needs to wonder. I wonder who he is anymore. Dude, he just fell from the temple. And Jesus says, Hmm. Deuteronomy 6, don't put your Lord to the test. Don't put the God to the test. Meaning, don't try to twist his arm. Don't try to manipulate him. Again, um, I'm not under any illusions that you are tempted to go to the top of a building and jump to see if God will allow you, uh, have a bungee cord miraculously uh, appear. But I, I do think this. You may believe that God is a God of grace, and you would be right. And you may believe that God is a God of mercy, and you would be right. And you may believe that God is a God of forgiveness, and you would be right. But if you have a friend, and you harm them, and then you look them in the eye and say, by virtue of our friendship, you have to forgive me. Um, there's a kind of truth there. Friends forgive. Friends forgive work for a way to fight for the friendship by finding a way to forgive one another. That's what friends do. But to put it in those stark terms, you're a friend, and because you're a friend, you have to forgive me. That, my friends, is presumption. And to think that sounds bizarre in the way you might conduct a friendship, it's even more bizarre when you think of the Lord and say, you like to forgive, I like to sin. It's a match made in heaven. Yours and my temptation is to presume upon God's grace. As Paul says, don't use your freedom from the curse of the law or its penalty as a pretext and a justification to act as you would. He is also holy. As surely as he is merciful. Last one. 
you're tempted to make your own provision. You're tempted to act on your own presumption. And you're also tempted to make your own prominence, to seek your own prominence. Jesus, you came to have authority over all these nations. I'm going to get you what you came for. You just got to do one thing, one trade-off. Shift your allegiance. Put my patch on your arm. Let me be, be on my brand. You can have it all. I'll give it all to you. This is what you wanted anyway. You just got to follow me. And Jesus says, how about no? Deuteronomy 6 again. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. There's a trade-off that's being offered to him, and he says no. He is God's alone by virtue of his identity, and he will go in that direction only. What's that map onto your world? Vivian Meyer was a nanny for Phil Donahue. Those of you who remember that guy's name. But she was also a city photographer. And she went out and shot some of the most astonishing photos you will ever see. And you know what? Before she died, she never printed or published a single one. If it weren't for the heads up of somebody buying her estate from 10,000 pictures in the attic, nobody would have ever heard of Vivian Meyer. And when they printed it, they were astonished. What did she do? She took pictures for the sheer purpose of capturing the beauty, not because of anything it might do for her. Kids, when you're young, we tell you, we adults, oh, do that, it'll look good on a resume. And you know what? That's right. That's how the game works. You do stuff, people notice, oh, and you get access and opportunity. But what does that treat in you? What does that create in you? It creates in you this, a mindset that I ought to do everything in order for it to be seen and to be recognized. And that teaches you that you've got to prove everything to prove your worth. Jesus is here to tell you, you don't got to prove nothing. I did for you what you need. Serve the work as it's imported, as it's needed, but not to prove something. The temptation of Jesus is meant to call us to vigilance. Watch and pray that you might not fall into it. Temptation is our lot. You will face it. And as you do, the other promise is, don't worry. There is no temptation that's unique to you, and God gives a way for the way of escape. But what happens if you fail? What about the other side of it? The gospel is, as Hebrew says, we have a great high priest who is, un, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And that is why we give him praise. Um, many of you know that Tim Keller died two days ago. And as I've spoken with many of you, we share a common experience that even if you've never met him or never seen him up close, um, you find yourself weeping for not really any kind of understandable reasons. And in my own heart, I think it's because that man organized my life and thought for a very long time. And that is the same for countless others and many of you in this room. But one thing he said in one of his last interviews um, a few months ago in the Atlantic, he he said this about his own life. Religious faith, the man heard this yesterday as we talked about it at the barbecue. Religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. But as God's reality dawns more in my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. 
It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded than I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. I give thanks for Tim Keller because he taught us how to die as much as he taught us how to live. And what he is saying to us here is that your greatest resource against temptation is that heavenly-mindedness that comes by way of remembering that you belong to him by what he has done for you. And that's why we're coming again to the table. Because this week I forgot, and maybe you did too, and that's why I need it. And so we come. And so we do. Let's pray. And so, Lord, as we come to the table, and we give thanks for many faces, many voices, many fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters and aunts and uncles who have shown us a way forward, we ask that you might now consider again what you have done, and how that speaks most importantly to the fact that we belong to you by faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.